Well, good morning and welcome. We are continuing uh, in our sermon series this morning from the book of Hebrews, or if you've been here at all for recent weeks, the sermon letter of Hebrews, which is probably the best description of this book of the Bible. Uh, It is written, seems to be a sermon, written to a particular people, a people who seem to be growing weary, a people who needed encouragement to not let go of their profession of faith in Christ, but to hold on and to hold on tightly to that confession of faith when it appears they were being tempted to let go and maybe return to their former Jewish practice of faith where there wouldn't be such conflict, there wouldn't be such hostility within their culture. And so these people, and we can empathize with them, these people were feeling cultural pressure and were at the point of thinking about, well, maybe I'll just go back to my former way of life. And so each week, that is the context, that's the theme that the author of Hebrews is speaking to. And and some of you are going to be saying to yourselves, well, he sure does seem to be repeating himself a lot in these sermons. Well, that's because the author of Hebrews has a crafted sermon with a central theme that he continues to revisit over and over and over again. So these sermons have that repeated theme. This morning, you're going to see the author of the letter repeats himself. He repeats himself on the subject of rest, using the language of rest five times in this passage. That's his theme in this passage this morning, is don't miss the rest that God is offering His people. Don't fall short of it by letting go of your profession of faith in Christ. How does he say that? Give your attention to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Listen to the repetition as he repeats himself from the previous chapter and hear his point that he is driving home for each of us this morning. Therefore... Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, that is Israel. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, We who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says... They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had set a certain day, excuse me, those who had formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. 
This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Sobering words meant to encourage us. Let's pray that God would do that very thing. Lord, would you take these few minutes now as we consider your word, and would you sober us with the truth that your word has for us? Would you bring us to our senses if we're sleepy and groggy in our faith, if we've been discouraged If our our faith is weak, would you strengthen us? And do it, Lord, through your word and by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been restless? Have you ever had a really bad, sleepless night when you were unable to rest? Those are the times that you find out and realize how we are made to work but we are dependent upon rest. So it had to be 20 years ago, um, by my math, no, actually more than that, 22. I'm not very good at math. Um, My wife and I were the proud parents of a newborn little baby boy named Hamilton. We lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and we thought, for whatever reason, it would be a good idea to take this newborn baby with us, a couple of months old, six months old, I don't remember, and to fly to St. Louis to see old friends from seminary. So we went to the Atlanta airport, and, you know, my memory's not real clear, and why I would move forward with this trip with an impending ice storm coming, I'm not sure. I can't, I guess that is who I am, but I did it. So we went to the airport with little baby Hamilton in the carrier, and we're going to fly from Atlanta to St. Louis. And sure enough, that evening, the entire airport is shut down because of snow or ice. I don't remember. What I do remember is the worst night, the most restless night I've ever had in my life. Here I am. Wasn't I don't know what my age was. I won't do the math on my feet. But I had a newborn baby, less than a year old, 
and we're told everyone is spending the night in the airport tonight. And so everybody literally fends for themselves. I remember um, finding a corner and moving some of those little couch chairs that they have and kind of cornering off a safe space for my newborn baby and wife because we're supposed to hunker down for all these hours until we can fly the next day. And all night long, you've been in the airport, every minute that same repeated, the white zone is for the immediate loading and unloading of passengers only. Please do not park in the white zone. And it's just the same warnings about luggage and don't take luggage from people. And I almost felt like I was going to go crazy because you couldn't sleep. Constant interruptions of the same announcement. And you're worried, are we safe here? Surrounded by all these thousands of strangers, are we going to be okay? So all of those elements create for restlessness. You have no safe place to put your head. You don't know where your meal's coming from. You don't know your future. You feel about as much like Old Testament wandering Israel in the desert as we probably are ever going to feel as Americans living in the world in which we live. It's completely restless. Wanted to go home and be in my bed and be in my safe place. You've had a restless experience of some kind like that. Maybe it was camping out. Maybe it was at an in-law's house. I don't know. But when we are unrested, we start to see the worst of ourselves, don't we? When we're hungry, we start to see the worst of ourselves. And all of those elements are true of humanity and always have been And they are embodied in the people of Israel during these wandering years. And their hearts were turning hard. Their thought towards God, Old Testament Israel, was getting uh, hardened and difficult. And we learn from our own experience, as they did, is the human being needs rest. Got to have rest. And we know from the rest of Scripture that God created us to work hard And to have rest. He actually has given us this rhythm of of six days of work, one day of rest. That none of us functions like we should with. But that's a part of what we know it means to be a human being. Is to, to live in that rhythm. That you need rest. Your batteries will wear out. And you need physical rest, spiritual rest, emotional rest. Some of you are on fall break right now. Your school's have gotten out, and you're like, whew, this is so good. And as good as it is, it's not quite fulfilling, is it? You're like, this is good, this is right, but it's never quite satisfying as you would dream that it could be. All of these themes are swirling in our passage and in our context this morning. Five times in that passage, the author talks about rest, 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 rest. Because rest is a biblical subject and category. And you understand that, and I understand that. We need it. Now, why does he talk about rest? Where does he come up with this category? Why start talking about rest? Well, you may remember from previous weeks, he's quoting from Psalm 95, verse 11. 
That is providing the content and the structure for his sermon. So he's preaching from Psalm 95, and it's there in verse 11 that the language of rest is used. And this longing of rest that Israel had and that they lost it for a generation. They lost it for a season. And so he is now using that failure to warn those Christians, don't fall short of entering that rest that God has offered his people. Three points this morning, and they are very simple. But I hope that they'll be encouraging to you as you get your arms around this this book of Hebrews. The first is this. The author is telling us in chapter 4, there is a rest that remains for the people of God. It's still there. Even though our spiritual ancestors and predecessors seemingly blew it, the rest remains. And there's a reason why it remains, and that's my second point. I'll get there in a minute. This whole concept of rest is what God, our Creator and our Redeemer, has given to us. So we have to understand rest from God's perspective. From their perspective, they rightly understood or partly understood that rest was all about that land of Canaan. That God had promised to give a land, to preserve a land for his people that would be their home and their place and that God would be their God and that he would be, they would be his people. And that land, you know, that's described is a land of milk and honey, a land of enormous grapes. And it's all a picture of abundance. It's a picture of man. We're living in the desert where there's very little But God's going to give us a land that is so rich, it's so full, it's so bountiful, it's so plentiful, our appetites will finally be filled. And the Lord uses that hunger and that imagery of finding that kind of rest. Rest from worrying about where your next meal is going to come from. Now, when you're hungry and you're wandering... That's about the greatest hope in this life that you can have. Provision of your need. But it was more than Canaan. What God had offered His people was was more than an earthly place called Canaan. Now, He had also promised them this Sabbath rest. And He had given them this Sabbath rest, which was that rhythm of you work hard for six days... And there's one day of full, complete rest. Cessation from your labor. And the Lord will provide for your needs. You need to trust Him by faith. But there's a land coming for you, and there's one day in seven that is structured to remind you of your needs, for you to worship the living God, for you to gather together in your remembrance of who God is, and to worship in song and feasting. And now we have something like that. Our Sunday Sabbath. Where it's to be set apart from our other six days for all those same purposes. But even that was not enough. There was more to this promise of rest than that. It was about Canaan. It was about a day of rest. But more than those things... 
The author of Hebrews tells us it was to participate in the actual rest of God, which He has done since creating the heavens and the earth. And being in rest with Him is being in peace with Him. And the author of Hebrews is saying, oh, it's more than Canaan. It's more than one day in seven. It's actually participating in God's rest. Those other things. Canaan was just a shadow. It was a picture of the kind of rest God offers you. And the one day in seven rhythm and our attempts to rest from our labors, it's but a shadow of the real substance that God is offering His people in Himself and in His rest. On this subject, John Calvin said this. He said, Earthly Canaan is not the final rest to which the faithful were to aspire. God's people were always to look higher than that earthly land. Indeed, Canaan was but the type and symbol of our spiritual inheritance. Do you hear that? Now, if I asked you today, what's your favorite day of the week? I know how my children answered that question, or at least one of them did. And it's exactly how I answered it when I was a child. Favorite day of the week? Saturday. Why? Bowls of cereal and cartoons. That's all the child needs to be happy on the weekend, and that was, that was true of me. But what if that one day in seven really was supposed to be the best day of the week? What if it really was just the fulfillment of fellowship and worship and enjoying God's people? What if it could be that? It's supposed to be a shadow of the substance to come. Now, I know I can read your minds. You know, if you preached a shorter sermon, maybe Sunday would have a chance to be my favorite day of the week. But you get up there and you just start going. Sunday can be a hard day for all of us. But can you see it's supposed to be the shadow of a substance? It's the shadow of something that will one day where everything's going to be just as it should be. And we get it all wrong. But one day God is providing a land of abundance and provision that is ultimately found in Him. He's providing a fellowship, a worship that is ultimately going to be right as it should be. And you and I are supposed to be ever leaning forward, hoping for that and not finding a sense of permanent residence here, which is what every one of us, how we instinctively think. I was talking to an older gentleman, not in this church, but he was visiting our church, and I was speaking on this subject back when we preached out there. And he said, you ministered to my wife today. And I said, what do you mean? He said, she's been worried for weeks about how to get all the, the grandchildren and children to live close to each other so that we have the perfect setup. And he said, you reminded us we're not supposed to be trying to make eternity here. Now, if you can do that, that's great. If you can all live together, it's wonderful. I'd love to do that. I want my children to come live near dad. But that's not the pursuit of the Christian life. We're ever leaning heavenward leaning forward for the hope and the promise that is to come. We're not going to find true satisfaction here in this life. 
But we should always be anticipating the true Canaan and the true Sabbath and what it is to really be leaning towards what God's promises have called us to. But somehow, even though our spiritual ancestors, what we're told about here in Hebrews and in Psalm 95 and in Exodus and Numbers, though they blew it so badly that God would say, that generation will never enter my rest. How is it that you and I can still be talking about there remains a day? It's still on the table for God's people. How is that so? I thought our ancestors blew it. The reason it's so is because the promise of God was to His children and to their children. He made a covenant promise that He was doing something in the earth, in the world, and He is going to see it through. Even if a generation should perish and fall away, God can raise up the next generation and woo them and win them to faithfulness. And that's exactly what the story of the Bible tells us. Because the promise of God to His people remains. The promised land remains. The promise was to the children and to the children's children. Genesis 17 being the first place we hear that. And that God's ultimate purposes in this world cannot be thwarted is a subject that you and I need to wrestle with. Do we believe that God's purposes, His eternal purposes, that we can ruin those, that we can undo those, that we can defeat those, that we can mess those up? Do you believe that? Or do you believe that God fulfills His purposes His way and that His purposes cannot be thwarted? And when He made that promise to Abraham that He would do something in the world, He meant it. And He's still doing it. And generations may come and generations may go and there may be whole generations that have hard hearts towards the Lord. But then the Lord in His mercy can come after the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren and woo and win their hearts. And some of you maybe are those children and great-grandchildren. Maybe your parents or grandparents had hard hearts towards the Lord. And He has called you back, fulfilling His promise to win a people, to woo a people. Or maybe some of you are the fruit of faithful parents and grandparents. And that seed line of promise continues through you. It's all God at work. It's God at work fulfilling His promises, doing what He says in His world. And He always does it His way. Now thirdly, what is His way? Well, it's through that covenant promise, which has always had a requirement of his people. And now that requirement, the author to Hebrews is telling us, remains. The land remains because the promise remains. And because the promise remains, the requirements of God's covenant people remain. And that is the heart of his sermon that he's writing to these Hebrew Christians. That requirement is of God's people in the Old Testament. It's of God's people in the New Testament. And it's the requirement of every one of us. And that requirement is that we persevere in faithfulness. 
that we persist in the faith, that we hold fast to the God of our confession, that we seek to obey Him, honor Him, and live for Him. And whether Old Testament or New Testament or now, there's always the warning. If you let go of Him, you let go of the only hope that you have. Therefore, hold fast to your confession. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. He's calling us to persevere in faith, to not let go. And in this passage, he says, don't fall short of the promise, of the promised land. Previous weeks, remember, he said, don't hold loosely, don't let go, don't drift. And these are all commands that are warnings to God's people. Now, I told you, I think last week, Hebrews really is almost like smelling salts that is seeking to awaken groggy Christians, sleepy Christians, that we're living life in this world and persecution and suffering and trial. It can harden our hearts and make us just think, ah, it's not worth it. And here comes the author of Hebrews, through God the Holy Spirit, with these smelling salts that say, don't let go. Don't drift away. Hold on. Hold on. It's your greatest hope. It's your only hope. So don't fall short of the prize. I had the imagery this week of, of don't fall short. Don't fail the test. James chapter 1, our reflection. Don't fall short. Don't fail the test. That was the imagery in my mind all week because it's the imagery of Hebrews. Now, some of you are baseball people. Some of you are not baseball people. Here's a baseball illustration from not really a baseball guy. But this imagery was in my head because I saw it about 20 years ago. And some of you will know this, but I think the point will remain. If I said the name Jack Cust, some of you already know what I'm going to talk about. But here's the, I'll just set it up. This is how it was written in the paper. It's called Remembering Jack Cust's Game-Ending Trip and Fall. And you need to watch this this afternoon if, you, if you've not seen this. It, it's truly heartbreaking. But to set the scene, on August the 16th, 2003, the Baltimore Orioles trailed the New York Yankees 5-4 to four, with two outs in the bottom of the 12th inning. Okay? Cuss drew a pinch-hit walk, and he was followed with a line drive into the gap in right center. Jack Cust immediately got on his horse, looking to score the tying run, but he was held up just as he rounded third base. And that's when disaster struck. Cust tripped and fell. And he found himself caught in a rundown with Jorge Posada and Aaron Boone closing in on him and it looked like all hope would be lost. He would be picked off. But wait, it says. After Posada threw to third, a miracle. No Yankee had thought to back up home plate. And the game-tying run was right there for the taking, just feet away with no one in his path. And what did Jack Cuss do? He stumbled and fell for a second time. 
It's the trip and fall heard round the world. And it's on YouTube. And so they lost that game when victory was literally just feet away. All he had to do was just jog. And the game would be over and they would have, could have won. Now why do I tell you that story? Well, because some of you really get it. You, you get that imagery of, oh, so close. Some of you are Yankees fans and you remember with embarrassment what that was like. But to have victory right there and it slips through your hands, so to speak. That's the imagery. The slipping through the hands is the imagery that the author of Hebrews has used in the previous chapter. And now he's using the imagery of don't fall short. Don't have been in relationship with the Lord for so long and then drop it. And so this morning as I've shared the author's images with you and his words with you, it's, it's the same application. Don't fall short of everything we have sung about this morning. Don't fall short of everything that we've prayed about. Everything we've read. For all your years of hearing these truths, don't be discouraged. Don't let the whispering in your ears from the world that say, oh, give up. Do your own moral thing. Don't listen to what the Bible says. You're your own man. You're your own person. Don't listen to those voices. Don't let go of a good and true confession in Jesus Christ. There's a very real sense in which, in which the author of Hebrews is scaring the people. As a matter of fact, in verse 1, the language which in the NIV read what? Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful, it says in the NIV. Literally, it says fearful. Let us be fearful or you might miss out on it. And we don't like using the language of fear because you feel like you're being manipulated. So we'll say it another way. But it is the language of let us be fearful of the reality that you could fall short of this promise. So there's a sense in which he's, he's startling us like those smelling salts. And this week I was reminded that when I was in the eighth grade was not old enough to go to my church's youth group. It actually wasn't even my church. It was the next church in town because we didn't have a youth group because we were so small. I was in eighth grade and you didn't go to, to youth group until ninth grade. But they had a special event in youth group and I wanted to go to it. They were going to Columbia, South Carolina to visit the Correctional Institute. It was a program called Scared Straight. Some of you maybe remember something like this. Apparently, my parents really wanted me to go. It's a true story. Um, it was in a season of my life where I wasn't taking school seriously, wasn't doing my homework. And I remember my parents being like, yeah, we think you should go. And so we went with the youth group, and they literally gave you a tour of the prison, and you got to hear from some inmates that sought to scare you straight. So you got to hear about how they didn't do homework when they were kids. They didn't go to school. They dropped out of school. And um, never forget that. Never forget that, because it was scary. I don't know that it played any real influence in my life change. But that, that whole mindset of, you need to be scared straight, lest you make the same mistake that we make, which is what every one of the inmates said. Don't do what I did. Don't do what I did. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't be like your spiritual ancestors in the desert 
whose hearts hardened towards the Lord. They took him for granted. They took his promises for granted. They were not serious about living for him. Don't be like them because they perished. They perished in the desert. If an entire generation was lost, would not enter the promised land. Whew, that's a hard word, isn't it? Don't be mad at me. It's what he said, right? Pretty sure after this uh, sermon letter to the Hebrews, whoever this pastor was, got a lot of emails, maybe some text messages. The author of Hebrews is an encourager, but he's not a shoulder-squeezing encourager. He's a take-you-by-the-shoulders-and-tell-you-true-things kind of encourager. I get that. Some of you maybe respond well to that. Maybe some of you don't. But, but that's how he's speaking to these people. He's not mad at them. He's warning them from history and saying, don't let this be true of you. Let's pray that that would not be true of any of us or our children or our children's children. Let's pray. Lord, all we can do is ask and pray that you would show mercy to us, to our generation, to our children and our children's children. And Lord, if any hearts have been hardened, if any hearts are hard, whether in us or in our children or in our children's children, Lord, we can only ask that you would show a softening mercy. That you would use spiritual smelling salts to bring them to their senses. That you would help them and us not listen to the voice of culture in our ear that discourages us and tells us to give up. A voice that makes us grow weary and lose heart. Instead, Lord, would you give us friendships and fellowship that embolden us, make us strong in our faith, zealous for good works, sincere in rearing our families for your glory. Lord, we can't do these things. We can't muster up the strength to do these things. And so we ask you, your spirit and your word to do these things in us. We ask it and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.